Well, it's an interesting question, but of course each startup is different, but I think that if you have a limited amount of money, then you shall spend it at being able to show something that works to the world outside. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the new episode of VAU Executive Academy podcast, where we give you exclusive insights from some of the brightest leaders today, who all have one thing in common. They are or were students of our MBA programs. I'm Chadomir Pushica, your host, and it is my task to ask the right questions so that you can learn more about the person, their industry, their mindset, and how they manage to bring positive change to businesses and their communities. If you're into sports, or if you want to learn more about securing investment for your sports tech venture, then this podcast episode is for you. With us today, talking about sports and investments, among other things, is Anatoly Evdokimov, a graduate of the Professional MBA in Finance and our alumni ambassador in Russia. Anatoly is Vice President at Indigo Capital Partners, where his job is to secure, evaluate, and execute new investment opportunities in sports tech. He supports portfolio companies in fundraising, strategic questions, hiring, and other relevant areas. He is an experienced investment manager involved in all aspects of private equity and venture capital type transactions. If the entrepreneurial spirit moves you, please say hi to Anatoly Evdokimov. Hi, Anatoly, and welcome to the show. Hi, Chedemir. Thanks for having me here. It's uh, an honor and a pleasure. Thank you. I am personally very excited about this interview because A, we share a passion for sports, and B, we share a passion for entrepreneurship. And I can't wait to dig into the startup world with you and ask you some of the questions that might help many people get clear ideas about what they have to do in order to develop their ideas into actual businesses. My first question to you is, do you practice sports? Oh, yes, I do. By no means am I any professional, but I do practice a lot of running and I practice some badminton when I was back in Russia. Oh, okay. So where are you now? Are you in Austria or in Russia? I'm in Austria now, in Vienna. Okay. Where do you prefer running? What's your favorite course? Oh, I live in the 6th district and it is a pretty nice district by itself. And so I just enjoy running around the district or going to some pool parks that Vienna has in abundance, like the Cartier Belvedere or the Schoenberg Park. Oh, very nice. Very nice. It's a good city, a good city to stay fit. Definitely, definitely. I used to run at the second district and you have this very long street. I think it's Leopold's Gasse or something like that. It's like four kilometers. It's excellent. So as you say, it's really a great city to stay fit. (laughs) When you first came to Austria, what struck you the most as different from Russia? Well, many things are different, of course, but just to give one positive, one negative example, the positive one is an incredible mixture of cultures anywhere from work to child playgrounds. I encounter people from all cultures speaking Spanish, Russian, Bulgarian, German, whatever, and it's so cool. But on the negative side, probably I was a bit surprised that some things technology-wise lack here a bit, like banking is not what I'm accustomed to and and things like that. But that's probably an old band in me complaining. (laughs) So what exactly in banking, when you mentioned that, what do you miss in particular? I I hope I'm not complaining too much. You can delete that part if you want. (laughs) Really, I saw I saw a commercial by Raiffeisen, I think, and it was this January, and it was saying, you can now use your card to pay online. 
And I thought we were using our cards to pay online like 10 years already. <laughs> so it's a bit strange. Okay. Okay. Any, anything technologically different from that? Because it does really sound strange. But is there any service in particular, which is a bit more advanced, let's say, that doesn't exist in Austria and is quite normal in Russia? In Russia, and not only in Russia, but in some other countries, you now have these uh, huge ecosystems built around financial services where you can basically do whatever you want in your banking app. And that's super cool and super comfortable. And I think that gradually we will all be there. So it is coming to Austria as well? I, I hope so, yeah. <laughs> okay, okay, good. So you've been in the world of finance for many years, and you also took a professional MBA in finance at VU Executive Academy. How did you decide to take that step? And what was one major takeaway from your studies? Well, I started working with startups internationally back in 2018 when I moved to my new company, Indigo Capital. And to be able to communicate in one language, so to say, and to have some cultural common ground with the startups that I'm talking to, I decided to go through the MBA program. And I selected the U because basically it was in the center of Europe and a good quality program. Talking about the major takeaways, well, first of all, it was like being plugged into some huge electrical circuit because the energy that the program provides is just incredible and it inspired me to do many interesting things. But knowledge-wise, I think that the most important result of the program is that I'm now able to look at the very same problem from a multitude of perspectives and know at least the basic toolkit, how to approach it from marketing side, finance side, that's so true. And I agree with you. I think the different angles, different perspectives and all the people you actually meet, that's just something that broadens your horizons. So absolutely understand that. So now let's move to the startup world. You mentioned startups. What are the main milestones in startup development? Let's say one has an idea, full stop. So how do you develop it into an actual business? What steps lie between the idea and knocking on your door and asking for funding? And once they do ask, what are the criteria that matter for a positive decision? Well, it's a million dollar question. If I had one answer <laughs> that people can follow, then everyone will be a millionaire or billionaire. But trying to answer to the, to the spirit of that question, I think that the most important thing to have when you have an idea, apart from that being a high quality idea, is to have determination and energy to go ahead with that. That's one thing. And second thing is being able and being ready to pivot that idea when you get the feedback from real world, be it investors, your friends, your colleagues, your first clients or whatever, and shaping your initial idea into what is really needed to the market and to the people to whom you're talking to. Because what I see a lot in dealing with especially early stage startups is that people kind of grasp to their idea, they hold on to it. They do not change despite being slightly wrong or significantly wrong. And then the idea dies and the startup dies. And that's always very sad. Yes. Yeah. So that was kind of 
part one of the of the question, right? Part two is that, of course, when you start investing on super early stages, it is mainly about the quality of the idea and who is behind that idea. Investing in people is a cliche probably, but it is a good one nevertheless. So on the super early stages, it is about the founder. Then it gets, of course, more about how you're able to, to deal with clients, to adapt to the environment and to actually build something that is bigger than friends sitting in a hired office and doing first couple of successful sales. And an interesting thing is that many people can actually start and make the first sales and make the minimum viable product, as we call it, to show something to investors and to the market. But it gets one skill set to reach that stage. And once you come through that level, as in all good computer games, the next level is even harder because now you have to do some different things. You have to grow your team. You have to scale up. You have to talk to investors. And it's a different skill set. Yes, yes. That's something I've heard many times. And they say there are people who are business starters, people who just go ahead and start businesses. And then there are those who actually build businesses. And it's very true. But I want to come back to the initial thing that you said, the pivoting, the ability for a company to actually, or the founders, to accept that their baby is probably not the most beautiful in the world and pivot and change the direction and adapt. Can you remember a successful pivot in your investment career, like some company that started off with one project and then slightly changed it based on the market feedback and succeeded? Well, our portfolio is still on early stages in many cases. So that will not be an example from the world of sports, but from some of my previous experiences more related to healthy foods and and things like this. So we had a company, for example, in Russia, and we still have it, that is producing healthy smoothies, and which is a tasty thing and good thing, etc. And the idea initially was to make it as healthy as it can be, basically just to put uh, 100% of wild berries there, right? And no sugar and nothing. And that was a beautiful idea because it is healthy and it is good, and then we liked it. But the thing is that if you stick to that principle, 100% organic and no sugar and no conservants, and basically you just stick to it, then unfortunately, there is still only a limited number of people who can buy that. And the trick is that if you, you know, add not actual sugar, but some fruits that are sweeter and that may offend the fitness lovers, so to say, then you actually increase your market 20-fold, 30-fold. And the company did that and and they survived and grew up to be a pretty good company and a leader in their segment. So that was a small step from their initial philosophy, so to say, but it was the right step. And still they're healthier than 90% of what is on the market. That's an excellent example, really excellent example. So do you actually have to have a registered business in order to pitch your idea? It depends on what each particular fund is doing. But I think that in 90%, you do have to own a legal entity, which will actually accept money from investors, whomever those investors are. 
because nobody literally invests in some form of personal facility, so to say. In our case, apart from having the legal entity at hand, you also have to provide us with a minimum viable product that we can actually you know, fill and touch if it is some wearable device or browse through the web interface if that is some kind of software. But this particular part of what you shall have, it differs a bit from fund to fund. Okay. And how many investment rounds are there? Is there any rule? Well, it can be endless, as some of the examples in the United States show, but basically it all starts with pre-seed round where you just have an idea and legal entity and you're raising first money from your friends and family. It goes to seed when you already have something to show to investors and then to round A when the companies actually start doing something, going to outside world and actually selling and you can see the metrics, the financial, etc., and then it is like B, C, D rounds, and then it is either private and that's it, or you follow to IPOs, etc. But there is not any rule of thumb that you shall stop at this level, stop at that level. Everyone wants to go as far as, as, as they want. Good. Now, talking about investment options, what investment options are there? And which ones are better at which point and which circumstances for the entrepreneurs? Even from the entrepreneurial side, right? Yes. So I would say that when you just start, almost always starts with friends and family money and some personal savings because no one will give you anything for just the idea on paper. I mean, there are some stories about this, but, but those are just outliers. So then you get basically two options when you actually don't have something to, to show to people. You can either go to a normal venture fund like us or you can go to angel investors, which usually do invest in some earlier stages. Or you can go and head through a so-called accelerator. Basically, it is a combination of some money given to the company and some coaching and tutoring and providing you with necessary network to develop your company further. All these three options are viable, but my advice is on early stages to not only look at the money per se, but at how smart and useful that money is. Because if you just take money from some wealthy guy or lady, and basically you take it and go with it and do whatever you want, then you may end up just burning through that money in a year time, the investor being unsatisfied, and you are being stuck with the same idea, which may be wrong. While if you take money from someone who uh, is willing to talk to you, to, to deal with you on a regular basis, to provide you with contacts, etc., then it is always way better for all parties involved. So that's probably my piece of advice for anyone. And another thing, if, if I may kind of follow on on this topic, is an interesting thing that we see a lot is that people who are doing Namza business for the first time or for the second time, many of them tend to be kind of a little bit greedy on the first stages, right? And I mean, it's normal if you have a great idea, it's good to value it properly and to be proud with it. It's, it's a good thing. But the trick is that if you manage to roping some wealthy person who believes in your company and says, okay, this costs like 20 million now, and you take the money and you don't sell too much of the company's ownership shares to, to this person, then 
in 90% of cases, after one year of work, you cannot actually back up this validation that you got back one year ago with some actual numbers because it's just too early and because more professional investors start looking at your metrics and asking how have you done so far, what have you achieved, and you just have to go down on your valuation. And your initial investor is very unhappy with you because he believed you or she believed you. And when someone on the board is unhappy, that is kind of the beginning of the end because then you have to pacify this person. You have to manage the relationship between new investors and old investors. And it is kind of a sad story because it sometimes kills very good uh, ideas. And that was actually one of my questions. Like my next question is, how does the valuation work? And what advice would you give to people on how to go about getting the funds while still keeping ownership of their business? So you just mentioned that people maybe uh, price the company and put the price very high while giving very little in return in terms of ownership stake in the business to the investor, making them unhappy when the numbers don't show after a year, maybe. So how do you go about that? Is it just something you have a hunch for or your beliefs? As, as you mentioned, everyone wants to value their business very, very highly. But how do you go about it like generally? One of my mentors told me evaluation is not a complex question, but some hints to those who start their business is basically just to look at what people are asking for for other businesses like this, as usual. And there are some public sources of information on that point. There is a company named PitchBook or the famous Crunchbase website where you can get some insights. But in general, I would say that based on these PitchBook reports in Europe, when you do your initial rounds of financing, like seed round, for example, uh, the companies are usually valued somewhere in the bracket of 4 million up to 7 million euros. The better the company, the closer to the upper bound, the worse the company, the closer to the lower bound. So that's just some range that you can start with. That's one point. The second point is that you ask how to approach this funding and valuation thing. Again, everyone has their own path in life. But what we see a lot with our startups in our portfolio is almost always it is better to get slightly less money at this lower valuation to show some traction, some results pretty fast. And that will enable you to get much higher relation, literally two, three times higher relation exactly next year and not to lose too much of the company. While what people do many times is they try to attract as much money possible initially at as high relation as possible. And that leads to this trap that we discussed uh, earlier when you have done some pretty impressive fundraising initially, but you cannot show results that would be okay for those who invested in those terms. Hmm. And what is the normal ratio of ownership stake versus uh, valuation of the company? Again, no rules carved in stone in this area, but I can say that in general, people tend to sell from 10 to 20% of the company on early stages. 
And on later stages like B, C, D, uh, their ownership can dilute to 50% or slightly below. We as investors become a little bit wary if each of the owners holds less than 10-15% because their motivation is becoming a bit unclear, so to say. So they are still motivated by the good things they are doing. They're driven by their idea and making it happen. But for them, the metaphorical carrot at the end of the way, sort of using that, <laughs> is not growing the value of the company per se now, but instead just earning money as a CEO, for example, and being in the process. And that is not what the investors want. So if they, as you said, have lower stakes in the company, like 10, 15%, there should be more of them involved, right? More of the owners? No, it's a, maybe I kind of misrepresented it a little bit. So my point was that initially people tend to sell, no matter how many founders there are in the company, they tend to sell from 10 to 20% of the company to someone outside, uh, accelerators, investors, angels, whatever. Then this uh, part owned by third parties, by investors, it grows up and up and up. And the part owned by the founders, of course, goes down, down and down but it is valued more, right? So for us, if we see the shares of the most important founders, for example, a founder that is the CEO also, and we see that he or she drives the process. If share of that guy in the company drops below 10, 15%, at that point of time, he becomes kind of less motivated to make things happen. Yeah, so that was the point. Perfectly clear. Yes, thank you. But I'm afraid that I will appear as too greedy, too greedy guy. It's uh, we we're only <laughs> talking about money and valuation and, and etc. We <laughs> do also, we do also talk to people and help them develop their companies. And I have many brilliant stories about many founders. So it's, and that's I think also the most important thing, as you mentioned, finding strategic investors. Because if you believe in the company and you're not driven by greed for money, as many people maybe today listening to those brilliant stories of startups who raise millions and millions mm -hmm. and they immediately want to become movie stars, you know, and they kind of lose focus and don't care about the company as much as they do about becoming that successful person who raised money per se. So yes, we're absolutely on the same page regarding this strategy. And I believe that our listeners understand that perfectly. So let's not talk only about money, but I want to mention something here that is also interesting. I've seen that you participated as one of the judges at the recent Nordic Sports Innovation Challenge. Could you tell us something more about it? And are there any similar challenges where entrepreneurs can get in touch with investors? And which ones are your favorite? Yeah, it was a very interesting event to both me and my colleagues. We tend to do it from time to time, each couple of months probably. In fact, this is a very good arena, so to say, for founders to pitch their ideas to the big world outside of their flat, so to say, and uh, to test their ideas and to get some feedback. And there are many, many interesting ideas there. And I can say for sure that we do follow on with our discussions with some of the companies that we have seen on forums like these. Apart from Sport Tech Nordics, there are always pretty good conferences in Switzerland, a couple of them. University of St. Gallen is doing a 
very good startup competition. There is a conference named The Spot, which basically collects startups from the German-speaking world. Also pretty good one. Talking about Austria, oh, actually the VU Entrepreneurship Center is doing a pretty good job. And they have some conferences for startups. And it is my sincere advice for all people having ideas and, and trying to do something to go and pitch. The more you pitch, the more you tell about your idea, the more feedback you get and the more you learn and you get better. So, yeah, it's a good thing. Excellent advice. So speaking about investment again, I'm sorry, I know you're from finance. <laughs> no, no, that's my job. <laughs> so if you were an early stage startup and you had 10,000 euros to invest, where would you invest it? doesn't matter. Just imagine some company. What do you think is an important aspect? For startups. So as, as, as a startup. Yes. Well, it's an interesting question. But of course, each startup is different. But I think that if you have a limited amount of money, then you shall spend it at being able to show something that works to the world outside. I see a lot of companies investing in offices, marketing, branding, stuff like this. And that is not, I would say, the, the most cost-efficient way to do things. And on the other hand, I have a story about a startup, by the way, that will illustrate this. So, Yeah, please. Yeah, we have this brilliant startup from Spain last year that we found and invested in. And it is like public information. It's also on our website. The startup is called Horizon. They are working with super, super good clients like Real Madrid, Juventus, and clubs like this. So the story is that they do not have an office at all. And the whole team has never met. Wow. They basically created this startup while driving in a van from Switzerland to Spain. The idea was created there. <laughs> the founders live in different cities. The team lives in different cities. Investors live in different cities, obviously, in different countries. And this thing works. And they have one of the top-notch clients in sports world on board. Why does it work? Because they focus on the things that matter. This is exactly what you were asking about. When they have a choice whether to spend money on participating in a fancy conference, for example, or to spend money on adjusting their product so that it brings value to one client that they have, they choose the latter. And that's why now they have thousands of clients. And for me, this is a super, super motivating story. And if I may add another part of the story. Absolutely. Yes, please. So talking about the personal qualities of the team, I would say that the founder in that particular startup, he has this philosophy that I think each and every startup shall adapt. And uh, I mean, I also try to adapt that philosophy in my work life. From time to time, there are so many problems in our personal lives and startupers' life and in whatever life that you just want to repeatedly bump your head on the wall and, and shout, right? But what the guy does, this particular founder, he says, okay, we have this huge problem, but let us just understand what we can do regardless of can we solve it, the whole problem, or can we solve just a tiny part of it? Let's understand one thing that we can improve and do it. And he always does that. So no, no matter what challenges he faces, he always does that. 
And I'm pretty sure that this approach will make this company maybe not a unicorn, but they will be big. It's, it's incredible. That is an amazing story. So what's the company's name again? Horizon? It's called like Horizon. Horizon. Okay. Yeah, but that was not an advertisement. <laughs> <That's>... <laughs> well, I think good examples should be advertised. So yes, it's excellent. And what you mentioned, understanding what you can do is really fundamental in moving forward and doing things, not panicking because that doesn't yeah. take you anywhere. So that's one amazing lesson. So now... Speaking about the understanding, I want to ask you one of the last questions. You may have heard that people say we don't learn about taxes and filing taxes in schools, but then later in life, we see that this is really important. Do you think there is anything that could be incorporated in the educational system that we have today? Speaking about the mandatory education, but also you can speak about university or after university studies something that is related to the world's best finance and that could help just an average person to be better with not so much effort? Well, I'm sure that governments will not ask me <laughs> this very same question, but thanks for asking it. Though. <laughs> I think that on the school level, it would be very useful to get young people familiar with the concepts of debt burden and having to actually pay back things <laughs> or the concept of uh, investing now to have something later, because this is like the basic concept of finance, that money now, of course, is more important than money in one year, and it costs more than money in one year. But on the other hand, sometimes it is really worth waiting for something good to happen and investing in something good to get high returns. So this kind of trade-off between when to get what you want that what costs is one important thing. And another important thing that shall be, I think, taught everywhere to everyone in order for people not to be tricked or fooled or just dealt with some unclean examples of finance people is that there is always a balance of risk and returns. And if someone promises you 100% return, there is a catch there, there is a risk there. And many people, really grown-up people, like 40-plus years old, with, with two educations sometimes, with whom I'm discussing this idea or another idea, they are telling me something like, hey, a guy pitched me a product and he promises me 100% return in one year. Shall I invest, right? And I say, maybe, but what are the risks? It, it may just fail the next day. And they say, no, 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 no. It's 100% return. It's cool. So this fundamental relationship between risk and return, I think it shall be taught to, to everyone. That's excellent. That's excellent. So Anatoly, I would like to wrap up now and ask you if there is anything that you would like to add that I haven't asked you, something for our listeners. I think it, it matters both for startups and for just people relationship. What another thing that I learned in VU and that I'm grateful for the U program for this, is that there is some public concept of how people are treating each other, you know, in different countries or how investors are treating startups, etc. But the reality is often different for that and different in the good way. I personally found 
no biases, no preconceptions about, for example, Russians or about finance people or about young people within my peer group in the U. And the recommendation and the principle is just go to people, talk to people, try to understand them, and it will bring something good to your life and open your lives. It is uh, open your eyes. It is always good. Yeah. I hope it's not too philosophical. No, actually, it's a beautiful phrase to end our conversation and to end it on a very positive note. Go out there, meet other people, talk to people, and be open. So, Anatoly, thank you so much for your input. I mean, this is this was really gold, and uh, I could go on and ask you so many questions, and maybe we'll repeat this interview some other time in the future. I would really love that. And so, for everyone listening... Thank you, and I hope you get as much value from this conversation as I have. Thank you, Jadamir, and good luck to all listeners. Thank you. Hello again. Thank you for listening to this episode of VEU Executive Academy podcast, Know How to Inspire. Now, one more thing before you go. Please subscribe to our channel on SoundCloud, Spotify, and iTunes, or check out our website at www.executiveacademy.at forward slash podcast. That is executiveacademy.at forward slash podcast. Last but not least, spread the word, because the more you share knowledge, the more inspiring it gets.